Well, good morning. Um, I miss Brenda sitting on the front row with me, coaching me. You know, she's encouraging she says, you know, stuff like this. See, I take advantage when she's not here. So, so it's Charles, don't worry about the time. Just, uh, you know, finish when you finish. So if you're, were, if you're bothered by me going past 12 or whatever, it's her fault. Because she's like, don't worry about it. If people want to leave, they're going to leave. But just go ahead and finish. I said, well, hey, man, that's all I need is a word of encouragement. Come on. <laughs> so she's really, she, does, she is my monitor. She, she helps me. Um, boy, I hope, I hope you got your Bible with you today or your, your uh, iPhone or something to track. Because we're going to hit a lot of verses today. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be long. But it could be. We'll just see. So you want to find Isaiah 20, Jeremiah 32, and the book of Hosea. I'm just going to preach three sermons this morning. How's that? Um, so, sometimes we may think that we've missed God's leading because we find ourselves in a place of, of struggle, trouble, um, just really despairing to try to have any measure of hope. Yet, it's in some of those places that God gives us a directive that seems so out of place. Has God ever spoken to you like that? It just seems like it's, well, where did that come from? And how is that going to fit where I'm at? Now, we may say, quote, we walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah, that's a great statement, isn't it? Yes, we, that's what we do. What we see doesn't bother our faith at all, right? No, not at all. But sight will command our, our minds and our hearts to the point that faith is really hijacked by doubt. We may say we're trying to walk by faith and not by sight, but what we see sometimes just overwhelms us, if we'll be honest. What we have around us is yelling louder to our minds than what God maybe has spoken to our hearts. I've, I've also heard people kind of like dive into like fatalism, you know, by the statement, but God is in control. I heard that again this this I understand what people mean by that. But here's what I think sometimes that statement is. That's kind of like dressing up faith when we're in reality, we're in despair. And we remove ourselves from the struggle of it by saying, okay, throw our hands up. God is in control. I have nothing to do with this. Right? But there's plenty of despair right now in our current world, to go around to bless all of us, right? So how do we have hope in the midst of despair? That's the title of this message this morning. How do we have hope in the midst of despair? Because somewhere along the line, financial strain is going to come to you. Family upheaval is going to come to you. Health challenges are going to come. Um, the government whether it's local, state, or, you know, we, we, we've got the lottery trying to come up again, and here we are having all of this go on again in Alabama. We're one of the few states that, that does not have spot, state-sponsored gambling. We have uh, 
almost an epidemic of people not honoring their parents, and we also have a problem of parents' misbehavior. So we've got family dysfunction going on. Sometimes it's kind of hard to get past all that and have hope beyond the dysfunction that we're facing. And if you listen much at all, things do not sound so good for our future. If you just listen to people, things do not happen, sound very good for our future, for our country. And there's nothing wrong with looking around and saying, well, you know, I, I hope it all turns out. But, but on the other hand, let me just say this. Football season's coming up, and, and so we can just redirect our worry toward football. But even then, we start kind of worrying about, I hope this season goes well. I hope all the predictions are true. And something like that. We, we try to redirect and avoid the obvious in front of us. Look around you. Do you see negativity around you? Do you see despair around you? Do you see a positive future painted for you? Not very much, is it? And this is why I believe this message today is very timely. Um, Because we need to have hope in the midst of where we're at. We really do need to have real, not, not made up phrases and cliches, but real, genuine hope inside of our souls. The, the neat thing about I, I give myself to you and all that I am, and, and I think the Lord was, says, what about, what about that anxiety that you got? Why, why aren't you letting me have that too? Why don't you let me have your worries and your fears? Why don't you turn all of that over to me? Because we can't have hope as long as we hang on to that other stuff. So here we go. I hope you just track this with me because we're going to look at Isaiah. Because here's, if God speaks to you to do something so outlandish, so bizarre, so over-the-top crazy, you're not in unusual company. Because there's three people that he speaks to, and we're tracking all of them. These are all Old Testament characters. But I want you to consider what he required of these individuals in order to express hope in a time of despair. That's the common thread with all of the scenarios we're going to this morning, is that all of them are in a place of despair or misdirection or confusion, and the people in general are way off target, way off compass on what's going on. We're going to go to Isaiah 20 to begin with. Here's a prophet that has more messianic predictions than any other prophet in the, in the Old Testament, and he is the most quoted prophet and books like Matthew, because he speaks so much about the, the messianic promises of God. He prophesied mainly in the capital of Jerusalem. He's an urban preacher. He's not, he's not the guy holding tent revivals out in the countryside. He's walking the halls of the government buildings, and he's on first-name basis with the king. So he knows all about protocol. He knows all about what it means to be proper. Because this is his sphere of preaching. He's speaking directly to kings. And, and notice what God tells him to do in Isaiah 20. 
If you already read, you kind of hit at me. But he says, In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Syria, Assyria, and, and remember this is in the context that at that time it was the Assyrian empire that was the world power that everybody was scared of. So this supreme commander of the Assyrian army came to Ashdod and he attacked and captured it. And at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent. Don't you like that word portent? We don't talk like that anymore, do we? Against Egypt and Cush. Cush is another word for Ethiopia. That, that part of northern eastern Africa that was like the answer to Assyria. So he's talking about those people. What, why does those people have any role in the people of Judah in, in Israel's history? Well, you're about to see this. He said, just as my servant has stripped down barefoot three years as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old with buttocks bare to Egypt's shame. Yes, that word is in the Bible. I'm not making this up. It is also translated that in the King James Version for those who believe that's the only inspired version that we can read. Okay. The, those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt. Get this. This is the point that he's making. The people of Judah saw this shadow of Assyria coming toward them and this is their thinking. And this is what people do when they step outside of trusting God. They try to come up with answers as to how they can get through the situation. We are no different, are we? When, when it gets a little tense, we start trying to come up with a plan. And this was their plan. Egypt is just west of us. And they've got a pretty good army. Maybe we can say, hey, if we're next, you're next. So you need to come over here and help us. And this was the sentiment in Israel. This was the sentiment in Jerusalem. Is that if they come against Jerusalem, we can always appeal to Egypt. This is why he told Isaiah to strip down and publicly bear himself. Because he said, this is what the Egyptian people are going to look like. When Assyria comes... He'll take them captive. And this is what he says in verse 5. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt, those who put their confidence in someone other than God, will be dismayed and put to shame in that day. The people who live on the coast will say, See what has happened to those who relied on, those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria. How then can we escape? He does this over a span of three years why? Why would God ask, or, or not even ask, why would he tell his prophet to strip down and be barefooted and exposed? We think, well, that can't be of God, right? 
Well, in that day and time when people were captured, one of the ways they humiliated them was they would strip all the captives down and they would parade them through the streets completely naked. You know, let's not forget that when Jesus was humiliated on the cross, it was because he was stripped down completely. When he talks about that he embraced the cross and the, and the suffering of that moment, that he didn't shy away from it, it was, it was total humiliation for him. And this is why Isaiah had to bear some of the humiliation. Why was it relevant? It's because people had their faith in the wrong thing. And God, God was shocking them into a different reality. And we might say, well, it doesn't seem like that that was of the Lord. But it was of the Lord. And it was to make a point Isaiah probably said, I, I sure wish we could do this a different way. Can we get this point across some other way? But this shows you that God is never predictable. And if we're counting on him sometimes to work in a specific way, you better brace yourself because it's coming in a different way. Why? Because he wants to show that he is sovereign, not us. Well, let's jump to Jeremiah, a little bit more favorable situation here. We're not going to be reading words from the Bible. It's probably not suitable for public consumption, but here we go. No, God did not tell Jeremiah to strip down. But he gave Jeremiah a directive in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 30 through 33 is this little section in the midst of a prophet's writings that are good because everything else is so depressing. And Jeremiah is referred to as what? The weeping prophet because he was so broken all the time. Nobody liked the man. Nobody liked him. He, he didn't get cards and letters from his listeners saying, here's my contribution. Thank you for preaching to us that Babylon's going to destroy us. Such a positive preacher. And yet here's this little section that one of the things God speaks to Jeremiah in chapter 31 is that God's going to put a, establish a new covenant. And it's not going to be written on stones. It's going to be written on the hearts of people. And God will put his spirit in people. Not that they're trying to adhere to written laws, but the law of God would be written on their heart. And then when you get to chapter 32, you find that Jeremiah is locked up. Zedekiah's locked him up. He's detained him. He's, he's in the, the area that the, the royalty, they, there was areas where they could lock people up. It wasn't like he was in a dungeon. They tried that before. But Zedekiah was telling him, you know, you're, you're uh, let me just paraphrase, you're killing us. <laughs> you're telling everybody that these, this army out here is going to overthrow us and burn our city down and I'm going to be captive and all of us are going to be captive and we don't want to hear that kind of preaching. So they locked him up. And while he's locked up, the Lord comes to Jeremiah and he tells him this, that your cousin, Hanamel, is going to come and offer a piece of property to you connected to your family. And you're the next of kin, and I want you to buy that piece of property and pay for it in silver. 
I think 17 shekels of silver. And so here's the, the weird part about this directive. The property is kind of like if anybody offered you property out of, outside of Kabul, Afghanistan, how would you like to buy that? How would you like to buy a motel in Kabul, Afghanistan? You can get it really cheap. Well, here's this piece of property, and it's in the war zone. It's where the Babylonian army, the armies have assembled all around Jerusalem. They're ready to overthrow Jerusalem. And here's this cousin coming to Jeremiah and says, Hey, this piece of property is kind of open for purchasing. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, when he comes, you tell him, you'll buy it. And make your purchase public. Now, just stop right here. Think about this for a minute, how odd this is. Jeremiah has been preaching. God is going to destroy the land. He's going to destroy everything around here. He's going to destroy this city. He's going to burn this city down because of the judgment of sin upon this city. And he turns around and starts buying property. Now what could happen there is one or two things. Either people think Jeremiah has lost his senses here, or that maybe he's devaluing the property so that he can make a windfall on it. Nonetheless, he's doing the unthinkable, and he says, make this real public. Go out, have all these witnesses, seal it, put it in a clay jar. And he does that. And in verse 17, Jeremiah has this great expression of praise to God. Follow this with me. He said, oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Pretty positive so far, right? Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands. It's almost like he's uh, praying differently from what he's preaching. <laughs> you show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord, the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct and their, as their deeds deserve. You perform signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day. And then it's kind of like Jeremiah needs to... Re have you ever heard people praying where they remind God? It's like... <laughs> Jeremiah, I don't think Jeremiah was completely sold on the idea about this buying his property. Because here's what he gets to in verse 24. He says, it's not a question, but it's almost like, do you see, do you see what's out there? There's siege ramps out there. The Babylonians are building ramps so that they can come over the walls of this city, and they're not far from doing it. How the siege ramps are built up to take the city. Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. This is part of his prayer. He's, he's saying this to God. What you said has happened. He's telling the Lord, what you said, what you've been telling has happened. It's here. It's out there, and it's about to take place. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver. And have the transaction witness. And though it's not written as a question, it kind of like, to me, is a question. 
And you've said to me, buy the field and buy it with silver, currency that's going to outlive the Babylonians being here. And you want me to have it publicly witnessed? Because I, I really think that this is how it's coming across because the very next verse, if you're there, God immediately responds to him. Don't you wish God would always immediately respond to you? When you're asking him questions, but he immediately responds to the Lord and says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and watch this. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. The the one that you was talking about earlier in your prayer, oh, sovereign Lord, you've created everything by your great harm. He said, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about... To give this city, he says, it is on. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the Babylonians to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This was unheard of that not only the army of Babylon was in camp, but Nebuchadnezzar came this time with his army, camped out there, made himself a little royal capital outside in the area. And he was waiting for the city to fall. And he says, he will capture it. Verse 29, the Babylonians who are attacking this city will come in and set it on fire. They will burn it down along with the houses where the people are roused by anger, by burning incense on the roofs to Baal, and by pouring out drink offerings to other gods. He said, the very houses that you went up on the roof and you practice idolatry, that house is coming down. It's going to burn. In verse 30, the people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, The people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. And he goes in detail after that passage of why Judah is going into defeat, what they've done. He says, listen, they are so bad, I'm removing the city from my sight. I can't watch what they do anymore. The city is going to be consumed. But look at this in verse 36. And he goes on, and it's kind of like he finally gets to Jeremiah's last statement, but, oh, you've asked me to buy this property in the middle of all this prophecy. Well, you're saying about this city, by the sword, famine, plague, it will be given to the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, see what God is about to give him is insight here. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. If you watch this, there's despair. There's, there's a terrible prophecy that's about to be fulfilled. But God, in the midst of that, is telling them that he still has a plan. And that plan is hope. Watch this. I will bring them back. They'll live here safely. I love this passage. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and with all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. Pretty good, right? It's like there's hope here. I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice. He said, I want to do them good. I rejoice in doing them good and will surely plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. This is what the Lord says. 
As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. This is why he told him to buy the piece of property. This is coming. Once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate waste. Without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver. Deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory. All of this area was the area where the Babylonian army was camped. Territory of Benjamin, that's where Anathoth was. That's where he was buying the property, was in Benjamin. And the villages around Jerusalem and the towns of Judah and the towns of the hill country and the western hills and in the Negev, which is way off down south, the desert. He said, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Buy the property, Jeremiah. Because it's a witness to the people that years later, People are going to be doing commerce there. They're going to be buying property. They're going to be blessed. They're going to be filled with prosperity. And that's why he told Jeremiah, put your deed that you've just signed in a clay jar and make it secure because it's going to take a while for this prophecy to be fulfilled, but it's going to be. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's that's harder to do than what we probably admit. But however, oh, we're doing good on this. However, quite possibly, the most difficult instruction given to a prophet is recorded in Hosea. Sometime back, Jonathan Giles gave me this book, said on the title of it was Amazing Love by Francine Rivers. And then he told me it wasn't a true story. Well, fiction is like just beat me with a stick. Don't make me read this. Because I love history, and I like, it's not a true story. He says, you will, be, you will be moved in many ways by this book. But he told me this. He said, don't quit reading until after the second or third chapter. He said, because you will want to put the book down and stop. How many have read, I know I've said this before, how many have read Amazing Love by Francine Rivers? Redeeming Love, I'm sorry. Redeeming Love. Well, don't read it. No one in this room read it. You'll cry like a baby several times. Several times. I would walk in and tell Brenda, says, this book is killing me. But I'm, I'm, I'm moved to see what happens. And it's a story of... A man like a Hosea. And when you look at Hosea, I mean, he doesn't waste any time telling you what God told him to do. The very start of chapter 1. If you're there at Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Barry, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Interesting thing here, the, the, the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes were still in existence. During the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So here's what the Lord speaks to Hosea. The Lord spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is full. This land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. 
He says to Hosea, wickedness is everywhere. And to make my point, sir, you go marry this woman who's known to be promiscuous and have children with her. You see, he's prophesying to two sets of kings, to the king of Judah, to the king of Israel. Both are spiritually infirmed and sick. The whole land is full of unfaithfulness to God, and God views that as spiritual promiscuity, spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery. So then Hosea marries, you know, a woman named Gomer. There's got to be a challenge just, just by the name. So he goes and marries her. And they right off the bat start having children. I mean, this is all in, in chapter 1. You, you're not reading very far and all this is happening. And the Lord says to Hosea after the first son is born, he says, give him this name. Not only is the Lord telling him to marry her, but he's going to name the kids. He says, you give that child the name Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of, of Jehu, which was in the northern kingdom of Israel. I will punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. How about that? Your first child is known by the reflection that God is going to do away with the northern kingdom. Hosea's wife gets pregnant again. I'm, I'm just going to go through this quickly. Just hang in here with me. And this time they have a little girl. And in verse 6, the Lord says to Hosea, call her Loruhamah which means not loved. How about that for a name for your little baby girl? Not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, but I should at all forgive them, yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them. He's making a distinction with this little girl between Israel and Judah. And he says, you name her Loruhamah because I'm, I don't love Israel anymore. I don't love them anymore. I'm done with them. But I will love Judah right now because they're not where their, their sister to the north of them is at right now spiritually. And he says, I will save Judah not by bow, not by sword or battle or by horses or horsemen. What he's talking about is where, where is the hope of the people? He said, I'm not going to save them by the things they believe in. But I, the Lord, will save them. Not love. And then in verse 8, after she weaned the little girl, she gets pregnant again. And this time they have another son. And in verse 9, it says, The Lord said, Call him Loami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Well, how, how about that for a distinction for a child? Here's Hosea, a man of God, a prophet, who's told to marry a woman of ill repute. And as they have children, they're given names to symbolize the decadence that's all around them. And he's giving these children this name. But in verse 10, he kind of starts giving a little bit of a sense of hope here in the midst of despair. He says, yes, the Israelites will be like sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. He says, there will be times when people say, that's right, God has left them. That's not the people of God. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Are you there? Verse 10. 
They may be said, you are not my people, but they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel. There's hope. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Not my people, but they will become my people. Look at that again. You're not my people, but they will be called children of the living God. Full restoration. For Israel and Judah are lodged in this third child's name. And I'm sure that right then Hosea is not finding much comfort in the names of his children. But this is what he knows is going to happen. She's going to desert him and desert those three little children. And she's going to go back into prostitution. Her lifestyle beckons her back away from a a godly husband and three little children. She's going to turn away from what mother instincts are all about. And she's going to go back into the old lifestyle. She's going to become a woman of, of promiscuity. To the point, you talk about Hosea hanging in there. Huh? How about that for challenging a man's capacity to forgive? But God has told him, I'm, you're doing this to reflect how Israel's treating me. How Judah's treating me. With their idolatry, with their unfaithfulness. Your life is going to be a physical picture of what's happening in the land spiritually with me. They're, they're committing adultery with going after other idols. They're, they've rejected me just like she's rejected you and she's rejected her children. This nation is like her. But he didn't leave her there. In chapter 3, you need to see this. It's not a long chapter. The entire chapter is very short. <clears throat> and this is where redeeming love really brings you back to this truth. Watch chapter 3. This is, I'm almost finished, so we're, we're doing okay. The Lord said to me, go. Show your love to your wife. Never stop calling Gomer his wife. He says, go show love to your wife. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, the whole, some of that stuff that they would do to celebrate their idolatry is make raisin cakes to idols. So I sought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I told her, he had to go, he, he had to take his own money and buy her back. His own, isn't that kind of like what God does for us? Took his own son as the ransom payment for our deliverance. And he says, you go and you buy her back. And this is what, this is what he says to his wife. You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God, 
and David their king, they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. That's all of chapter 3. He buys her back and he tells her, it's going to be different from now on. We're not going to be doing this anymore. And this is going to be a sign that God's going to rescue the nation of Israel. And he's going to rescue Judah. You see, the Lord may speak some challenging words to us. He may call on you to witness to one of the most repulsive people you've ever been around. But is it going to be any more challenging than what he told Hosea to do? Or Jeremiah to do? Or Isaiah to do? I don't think he's going to tell anybody what he told Isaiah. Or he might send you to the hardest, most difficult person to witness to. The most wayward person. You know why he does that? Because he loves them. No, he doesn't approve their sin. He didn't approve of what Hosea's wife was doing. But he said, she's going to do this. This is in her nature. This is who she is, but I'm going to change her. She's not going to be the unfaithful wife through the first years of your marriage. She's going to be settled in a home. It's going to be a normal home, a normal wife, a normal family. The Lord doesn't approve of any of us, does he? And he said, well, after we're saved, no, he approves us through the blood of Jesus. The covering of the blood of Jesus is the only approval we have. That the Lord sees the redemptive covering of his own son's sacrifice on us and he embraces us. In the midst of all this, God is calling us today to spiritual chastity. Just like in the class, you cannot serve two masters. And in some way, I think in some areas of our lives, we're trying to serve two masters. This commands so much of us. This activity commands so much of us, it actually challenges the lordship of Jesus to direct our lives. There's probably people here that have delved into pornography. You cannot serve the Lord in that. He was telling the people in Israel and Judah through these men, I will not accept partial service. I will not accept you having your idols and then going to the temple and doing sacrifices unto me. That has got to go. And the Lord is telling people in our day and time, you have got to let go of the things that's challenging the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. He wants all of you, not most of us, not 90% of who we are. He wants all of us. Because he held nothing back to get us. He held nothing back. Would you stand with me? He's calling us to abandon, abandon ourselves to him. To trust him and obey him. And listen to me. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for you. We're, uh, we're going to let a song play. So, because we're, we're going to have an open altar time here in just a moment. He has a plan for you. 
It's time for us to fit into his plan instead of trying to fit him into our plans. And it's time that we stop trusting what we see and start trusting what he has said. And that is a leap of faith. I'm sure Hosea was saying, I sure hope you know what you're doing. Because this is not going to look good to the in-laws, to my family, to know that she's going to be my wife. Can you imagine the flack he took when he announced he's getting married to her? And yet, why did he do that? It's because God, he doesn't take a risk on us, but he reaches us when we have no hope. And we have no confidence that something's going to turn out. Lord, I pray this morning that we won't see with our eyes and accept that as the finished work. It's not finished. You still have a plan for us. And I pray for those who, who have such a visual of, as Larry said earlier, failure of, of messing up, and they think that's it, that, that that's going to stop God from working in my life. And it didn't stop you working in Judah and Israel. You still love them. You didn't, you didn't embrace what they were doing, but you wanted to change them, Lord. And I pray for those who are being besieged by things they know it's not right. And you're calling them to trust you, to give them the power to live beyond what has made them stumble. And that today we surrender to you, Lord. We surrender all of us, all who we are. And as this plays this morning, I want us just to say, you know, I don't know, God may tell some of you to do something really outlandish. Really outside what is typical. And you might be like, wow, that, that could embarrass me. I don't know. But I hope that we're willing to step out on faith and do what he's called us to do. So as this plays, if that's your desire, just come and spend a few minutes before him and surrender to him.